0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Sky Perryman, the president and CEO of Democracy Forward. Democracy Forward is an organization dedicated to defending democracy in the courtroom. In fact, their legal team has taken the Trump administration to court over 100 times. And in 2021 alone, they racked up 25 legal and regulatory wins and got 22 Trump-era policies reversed. In my conversation with Skye Perryman, we discussed several of their current and more recent legal challenges, as well as those early cases where they challenged the Trump administration. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Skye Perryman of Democracy Forward. Sky Perryman, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Now, before we get into Democracy Forward, some of your more recent cases, I just wanna start from the beginning because I am so fascinated by how Democracy Forward was founded. After the 2016 election, there were a lot of organizations launched, right? There were organizations trying to expand voting rights or protect voting rights. There were some that were creating this pipeline of diverse political candidates. And I'm just curious as to how you at Democracy Forward could foresee that there would be a need for a coordinated legal strategy to support all of these efforts.
1: Well, thanks for that question. I mean, it was very clear. And part of what we've got to remember, I think, is when people show you who they are and when movements show you who they are, we need to believe them. And so it was very clear throughout the presidential campaign that Donald Trump, when he was running for president, what he would do if he was elected and able to come to power. And of course, we know he did not win the majority of the popular vote, but he did become the president. He was very clear early on that he was not going to have respect for our democratic institutions, that he was not going to value all people equally or respect the equal dignity of people. And so we knew going into that administration. And then, of course, in the early days of the administration, you saw a number of horrific and unlawful actions that that he and his associates took, that the current legal and regulatory landscape in the country was not going to be sufficient to address the level and severity of attacks on American democracy, and that Trump's rise to power really did represent a watershed moment where we are in a new era of American life where a movement that does not represent the majority of the American people has gained outsized political power and is going to harm people and communities. And so that recognition was the reason that Democracy Forward was founded, that lawyers left their great jobs and beloved colleagues in order to come and and make a difference and use the law for change during this time. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who was paying attention
0: knew that there would be some nefarious things happening (laughs) in relation to breaking down democracy. And I remember those really early days. The very first thing, and I could be wrong about this, but I think the very first thing that was just kind of set the tone for what would happen was the Muslim ban. I think that was like within days of him taking office. But I want to ask you about one of the first formal legal challenges you had, because I think it was to the Voter Integrity Commission that was headed by Chris Kobach. Am I right about that? Yep. So tell me about that, because I know this character. I knew of him before. This Voter Integrity Commission, I knew that once he was on board, that nothing good would come of that. So what happened with that case?
1: I think it's important as we look back and and remember, in the early days of the Trump administration, you're correct. They tried to shut the country off to people, and you had massive amounts of crises throughout the country on the Muslim ban, as well as many other unlawful activities. And you also had the president upset that he did not win the popular vote. And because he didn't win the popular vote, he sought to undermine the integrity of elections. So a lot of the themes that you see on January 6th that we've seen in the January 6th hearings and committees, you saw those in the early days of the Trump administration where this president did not want to believe that he did not win the popular vote. And so he established a commission called the Pence-Kobach, and that's, you're right, Chris Kobach and Mike Pence, Commission on Voter Integrity. And it sought to do a number of things. But one thing that it sought to do was to collect private information on individual voters and to store them on White House servers. And this was really seen as an intimidation tactic for many communities and many voters. And of course, was blatantly unlawful, was also a threat to national security, by the way. And a a number of national security leaders spoke out against it. And at Democracy Forward, we represented voters as well as a nonprofit organization, Common Cause, in challenging that commission. There were other organizations that brought other cases on different legal theories on behalf of different parties. And what we saw was that the administration ultimately had to back down and abandoned their attempts to suppress votes through that mechanism. They didn't abandon their complete attempts to suppress votes, but abandoned their attempts to suppress votes through that mechanism as a result of litigation and of the work that we and other organizations did. Right. And like I mentioned before, if you've tracked the work of Chris Kobach, You would
0: know that, you know, nothing good would come of that. And, you know, had he been more competent, you know, maybe it would have worked, but thankfully it didn't. But let's talk about some of your current or more recent cases. Since the Dobbs decision came down, I think it was maybe, what, two months ago now, you know, we've seen all of these trigger laws at the state level banning abortions. But there's one case that I think that you have, and this may have started before the Dobbs decision came down, and that was one in
1: Lebanon, Ohio. Can you tell me about that case? So we filed a case in Lebanon, Ohio, on behalf of the National Association of Social Workers and their Ohio chapter, as well as community volunteers with an abortion fund in Ohio that was formerly called Women Have Options, and challenging, and we we filed this a few weeks after the Dobbs opinion leaked, but before the court came out with the Dobbs opinion, but after it had leaked, and we were challenging an abortion ban in the city of Lebanon, Ohio, that does a variety of things, but it seeks to criminalize people for, quote, aiding and abetting or helping folks get care. And one of the reasons this may sound familiar to you is because if it sounds like SB-8 in Texas or similar laws that you've heard of, that is by design. It came out of this movement that a group of folks have been trying to pass abortion bans city by city throughout the country. And our case challenges that ban and relies on arguments that do not depend on Roe versus Wade. Because draconian laws that seek to prevent people from being able to go about their lives, from being able to say certain things, from being able to do their jobs, they often have a lot of constitutional problems. And so in that case, we believe that the ordinance violates the due process clause of the Constitution, the First Amendment, as well as some provisions in Ohio state law and we are challenging that and a little bit of positive news in this difficult time. The city did agree not to enforce its ban while the challenge has been pending in these early days. We'll have to see what happens as the case continues. But for now, we've been able to get some temporary relief for our clients, which we think is very good.
0: You know, you mentioned something that that I wanted to touch on because you said that the state bans sound similar, right? And I had asked a question in a different episode about whether this was a coordinated legal strategy on the side of conservatives.
1: Is that what's happening? Well, for many years, and this was prior to Donald Trump, for many years, there has been a concerted legal strategy by highly resourced and networked groups on the far right that have seeked to shake the law in very harmful ways, in unlawful ways and in harmful ways. And of course, that movement was very clear that they wanted to ban abortion, that they wanted to prevent people from being able to access health care. They've been very clear that they don't respect the dignity of all people in the country. They've been clear about a lot of things. And so what we do see, both with respect to the interests that were behind the Dobbs law, ultimately the decision from the court, as well as what we see in communities throughout the country, like Lebanon, Ohio, is the result of and the continued activity of that movement. So what has it been
0: like since the Dobbs decision came down? Have you been kind of inundated with cases and
1: stories? What's that been like? Well, at Democracy Forward, we work on a range of issues. One of our major values is we listen to communities and we listen to people, and that's how we are able to use the law and create strategies in order to build power and fight back. And so we have heard from a number of our current and former clients, from people living in communities throughout the country about the devastating impact of the law. We have heard from doctors about their fear and healthcare professionals of going to jail just for trying to help people, or in many cases, even save people's lives. And we've heard from people, of course, who need to access care and who are unable to. And so it's a really devastating time. But I think that what we have to remember is that The country has been in devastating times before, and that's not solace for the folks that are going and living this reality every single day. And there is urgency needed at every level of government in order to protect people and be able to enable folks to access health care. But I do think that what we have to remember, I think, as legal advocates, is that we have seen times where courts have issued unfair decisions, where courts have disregarded the basic humanity of people. We saw that in the 1800s with the Supreme Court. And we have to believe that our laws and that our country should be better and should require better and should do better by our communities. And that's what we're focused on in terms of our work. It seems like there is a deliberate effort to
0: cause confusion, too, because a lot of the language that's happening at the state level is kind of ambiguous and that seems deliberate on their part. I don't know if you agree with that or if that's fair.
1: Yes. I mean, there has been, unfortunately, a lot of there's a lot of misinformation generally, I think, to undermine democracy generally. And then, of course, right. in the context of women's health care, we've seen for some time deliberate attempts to mislead people. There are so-called sort of fake medical clinics or crisis pregnancy centers that are so devastating and misleading that many states have tried to regulate what they can say to people to make sure that what they do is not deceptive. And even that has been attacked by the right wing, basic consumer protections for people. And so we do know that there is an effort to mislead people and to confuse people. There are really good sources of information out there that, you know, we want people to turn to groups that have been advocating for and providing abortion care and health care. They will have accurate information, mainstream news sources. But there is a lot of misinformation and it's very unfortunate, and many people are going to continue to be hurt. So,
0: moving on from that topic, I know that there's a lot going on. And there was one really interesting case that I know you're involved with that is related to state backed disinformation or misinformation rather with right wing media. And if I understand that correctly, this involves the Texas attorney general who sent a letter to the CEO of DirecTV, which just that alone doesn't sound very legal, but it had something to do with the fact that DirecTV was severing ties with a certain conservative network. Can you explain what's going on there?
1: Yes, well, you got it right. And it also shows that this misinformation is not something that people are just confused or it's not just an accident, That we know there are concerted efforts to try to shape reality in inaccurate and harmful ways to confuse and mislead people and that it's a real threat to democracy. So in the case that, or in the situation that you mentioned, We did see that the attorney general of Texas and then he got some other of his friends from other states to sign a letter to DirecTV demanding that they provide information about why they decided to discontinue the OANN network from their network offerings. And so what we are doing is conducting a public records investigation under the laws of the states and under, of course, federal law if it involves a federal official. In this case, it doesn't. There are transparency protections where people have a right to know and are able to know about the dealings of their public officials. And we believe this is a critical tool. We use this tool a lot in the Trump administration to understand and be able to expose wrongdoing and educate the public. And we're using it here. So we have requested that these attorneys general provide information and any kind of documents that reference communications about their effort to try to understand any level of coordination between them and various far-right misleading media outlets. And I'll be happy to keep you up to speed as we get information about what we find. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm just trying to understand it from my non-legal perspective. This is a private company, you know, and it just seems like I don't think a government official or attorney general can command that they maintain a business relationship with any other private entity. Do I have that right
1: or well I think the main thing from our perspective was wanting to understand what's going on. Why did OANN ask these officials to do this? Is there chatter among state officials about how far right news networks that seek to confuse people are actually important to them? In the Trump administration, we saw at in many agencies throughout the federal government there was a high degree of coordination between or a high degree of at least communication between agency officials and far-right networks, and we produced a report on that that your listeners can go to our website and learn about. And so we're trying to understand, is that also happening at the state level? Letters like this that Attorney General Paxton sent, along with his friends, tend to make you think that there's something at play there. And then, of course, there's just broader accountability questions, right? I mean, in Texas, there are many needs. There are many needs throughout the state. And I think there are just questions as to why someone would spend their time on a correspondence like this, as opposed to doing the work of the people of Texas. How is this potentially harmful to democracy if
0: this were to go unchallenged, if there was no democracy for it and Texas just sent a letter to DirecTV? Like, how is that harmful to democracy?
1: Well, in this case, what we're really trying to do is uncover what happened, right? Because we believe that light can shine out darkness, and that what you really, you know, in a democracy, people are entitled to understand what their government is doing. And by the way, um, there are many government officials, Trump and his associates were some of them, there's officials now at the state level that ascribe to this view, who don't believe in government transparency and sort of want to be able to hide the workings of the government. So what we did here, and what's important here, is that there are people... Legal organizations, media organizations, individual citizens that are trying to vindicate the public's right to know, to learn about what their public officials are doing and why they are doing it. And so that's what this is really about. But more broadly, we do know that there are a number of efforts and to undermine our democratic institutions. And that includes not just our governmental institutions like our courts or our federal agencies or state agencies and other types of government and trust in civic engagement, but also our press. And the press has been a critical part of democracy, the ability of people to be able to take in accurate information and learn about what's going on in their society. And we have seen concerted efforts to twist reality, to meet one's own political view. And that is incredibly harmful. Uh, You see that through the far right networks. And we believe it's really harmful when there's at least a suggestion that governmental officials are somehow coordinating or somehow supported by those networks. So, you know, given
0: the, what you've just outlined with the TV case and with the attorney general in Texas, what other kind
1: of similar cases
0: are you seeing regarding right-wing attorney generals around the country?
1: Well, we are seeing an unfortunate trend where many attorneys general who are being entrusted by people to do the work of the people aren't and are actually engaging in incredibly harmful conduct. So, as one example, The federal government has instituted a minimum wage for workers on federal contracts, a $15 minimum wage. And there are a number of attorney generals, including Paxton in Texas, that are opposing that. And this is at a time where where people are really struggling to make ends meet. And the fact that you have attorneys general that are opposing federal requirements for federal contractors on wages is really unconscionable. We see, of course, attorneys general throughout the country threatening physicians threatening businesses who are trying to help their employees get care in states that are restricting access to reproductive health care and abortion. And so I do think that this is an area for your listeners to watch the sort of role of state attorneys generals. You see a lot of coverage around state legislatures or around governors, but the role and the abuses of power that we're seeing from state AGs, and of course, recently in Indiana, of course, as well, are really something to watch. And we're doing a lot at Democracy Forward to fight against that. We represent broad coalitions in defense of positive policies that right-wing AGs are seeking to challenge in court. And we, of course, are there to sue and bring cases where attorney general or others are abusing their power. You know, so I understand why
0: they would threaten physicians, right? I mean, we kind of understand that in relation to reproductive rights. But why would they attack workers' rights, especially in, you know, a case where they're trying to secure a $15 minimum wage. Is it, you know, at the direction of private companies? Why is this happening?
1: Well, I know. I don't believe it's at the direction of private companies because you see the state AGs are attacking private companies. I mean, in they're attacking the law firm of Sidley Austin. We see attacks from aligned organizations attacking the NASDAQ when it has come out with a rule on board diversity to try to enhance diversity on its board. And the SEC has approved that rule. And yet there's a lawsuit pending in the, in the Fifth Circuit in Texas with special interests that are attacking that. So I don't think this is about that at all. I think that what you have are people who are seeking to advance a narrow agenda that is a special interest agenda that is not, doesn't reflective of the needs or desires or realities for the majority of American people. We have just folks that are completely out of touch, that are abusing their power and that need to be held accountable. And that's, of course, what we do and work with communities to do every day.
0: Right. I mean, I guess it's kind of unnecessary to understand why they're doing it. Right. But this just isn't the direction that we want to be going in.
1: Right. I mean, in general, states attorneys, generals, as well as all state officials should use their power in order to better the lives of people, to take actions that are consistent with democracy and the law. And unfortunately, we see a trend of that not happening in many states.
0: So there was another case involving the USDA's rollback of school nutrition standards, which doesn't sound good.
1: Can you tell me a bit about that case? This is a good example. And I appreciate you having me on to talk about these types of cases and the work that you do on your podcast more generally, because this was a case that probably I'm not sure that this abuse of power would have ever made the news had it not gone challenged. And Democracy Forward was able to challenge it and end up securing nutritional standards for over 30 million children. So in the prior administration, one of the things that the Trump administration did was they sought to roll back nutritional standards that were applicable to school lunches, right? So a lot of public school kids and other kids in the country utilize the school lunch program, and it's really important that that food be as healthy as possible and abide by certain nutritional standards. The Trump administration sought to roll those back, and so our organization filed a case on behalf of our clients, challenging that, and we're able to get a federal court order that restored the standards. This is one of the many examples of types of protections for people and communities that Trump and his administration rolled back, and that we were able to challenge on behalf of folks and seek some relief. And so that's a good example, I think, of how the law can be used for change, even in times now where folks are very concerned about what they're seeing in the courts.
0: That's a massive impact, 30 million children. That's huge. How can we give people hope in relation to the Supreme Court and what's happening there? Because we know that it's, you know, woefully unbalanced in, in favor of conservatives. And, you know, there are these surveys that are coming out, these polls that are coming out that say that people have lost confidence
1: in the Supreme Court. So where do we go from here? How do we fix this, essentially? I'll say is that if we take a look at history, you can find some analog. This does not mean that what we're going through now is not incredibly concerning. I believe and we know that democracy is at an inflection point. This was the first time in the history of the court that we've seen the rollback of a constitutional right. It affects me and you. It affects women and people throughout the country. And so I am not making light of the situation that we're in on, you know, with respect to the Dobbs decision or any, or a number of other decisions. But what I will say is that we have seen in the past, the Supreme Court not protect the rights and interests of the American people. We saw that in the 1800s with, of course, many decisions that were dehumanizing decisions like Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott. But even in the 1900s, in the early 1900s at the turn of that century, we saw a court it was known as the Wachner Court, that against great social need, I mean, huge disparity between rich and poor, the KKK, lots of racial injustice and violence, huge disparities in working conditions, against great social need. We saw a court time and again strike down positive policies that were lawful for people because they didn't view the law in that way as being able to uphold those policies. This led to Roosevelt saying that he would like to pack the court, which never happened. But it also led to people starting to use their voice and to holding their elected officials accountable, as well as holding courts and institutions accountable. And so we saw the progressive era emanate from that time, the push and the demanding more. We saw lawyers using good legal arguments, innovative legal arguments, any type of legal argument that would allow them to represent the interests of people. And we ultimately went from the beginning of the 1900s, where you had a court that was striking down a number of people centered policies that were really essential. We go to a court that issues several decades later that's issuing Brown versus Board of Education, that's issuing Roe v. Wade. And so I think that we have to have a long view here. We have to do the work right now in the moment to require accountability. We've got to not give up and continue to bring arguments into court and to represent people because people in democracy deserve representation, regardless of who the judges are and regardless of who is in the courts. But at the same time, we need to have a longer view that we have seen that the power of people in a democracy can turn the tide. And I do believe that it can here if we all stay determined and continue to demand more.
0: So I guess I understand what you're saying. These historical examples show that we've been through a lot and we've overcome
1: really, really tough challenges in the past and in the same context or similar context. I think that's right. I mean, look, we're in a difficult spot now and I'm not going to pretend like that any, you know, I'm not going to pretend like that what's happened with Dobbs is not unprecedented because it, it was. But I do think that this country has always, at times, fallen short of the promise of democracy. You know that. I know that. We have seen time and again where in those dark periods of the country, in those times when our institutions have let down the people, we have seen people be able to make a difference and institutions be held accountable and people be able to create change. And that is what we all have to be working for now.
0: But how do you get the average person to do that, to kind of care about it? You know, because I I was talking to someone recently about the fact that for the past five or six years, we've been forced to pay attention to politics, whether we want it to or not. And I think people are really kind of exhausted and we can't afford to be, but I think a lot of people are exhausted. So how do you get the average person, you know, not the pundit, not the activist, not organizers or podcasters, just the person who actually needs democracy to stay sound and to be in place, how do you get them to pay attention to this stuff?
1: a lot of people really do the best they can and try to pay attention to a lot of things. But it's really about focusing, I think, on our common values as a country and on what means things to people, right? So people may not want to pay attention to every development at the Supreme Court. But if you start talking to them about the real life impact of what something like the Dobbs decision means, that their doctor might go to jail because they're doing their job or that their loved one may not be able to access healthcare because of a political movement that's putting politicians above the judgments of physicians and patients, right? I think that you can find the ability to activate people and to get them out. And I think that we see a great degree of engagement, but part of it is people have to believe that there is something that they can do in their lives that matters. And and we know that there is, you know, voting, registering people to vote, writing letters to the editor, using their voices. We see all of this every day make a difference, and we just need more of it.
0: And I know that you're keeping the lines of communication open about what's happening. So that's one useful thing you can do. They can sign up for your newsletter or go to your website to find out what's happening. I know that you put out a statement based on a speech that Trump gave earlier this month. It was his America First agenda. And you put out a statement in response to that. What was in his speech that you found concerning that you had to put out this statement? What's he up to now?
1: Well, you know, he is up to his usual habit, which is to plans and policies that undermine democracy, that undermine the ability of people to vote, to be able to prosper. And so he came to Washington this week, gave a speech where he's outlining sort of a platform. Vice President Pence was there as well. So it was all the usual suspects. And unfortunately, we didn't see any amount of remorse. We didn't see any amount of consideration for what has happened at the January 6th hearings or any type of democratic values, we saw more of the same. And so this week, we just wanted to highlight for people that Trump and the movement that Trump represents really does present a unique threat to democracy. It's very problematic. And it's not just him. It's everybody that sort of enables him and and that is around him and that is part of this movement. And this movement does not represent the majority of the American people, but it has and is gaining outsized political power. And so it's very important that people be vigilant. And to make their voices heard about what should be acceptable in their country. I mean, to call it a platform is a stretch. I mean,
0: he's never had a legislative platform. It's more of just like a list of grievances and you know an outline of like ways to oppress people. Yeah. Sky Perryman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all of your work at Democracy Forward. Thank you for looking out for us, basically. And thanks for having me on.